Let's just open uh, our time in the Word with a, with a word of prayer this morning. Father, we are, um, we are thankful that we, that we woke up today and we had another opportunity to, to experience life on this earth and to experience another time that we get to live our lives for you, another opportunity that we have to gather as your people and just to share just wonderful fellowship and encouragement to one another, to learn of you and your grace and how um, we can live in light of being your children. And so I just pray that this time now would be, would be impactful, would be fruitful, and we see how you are at work in the world, you are at work in our hearts. And so I just pray that you would give us eyes to see that which is in your word this morning, and that you would also give us the, the ability to, to live differently in light of the things that we learned this morning. And we want to give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if there's a particular story that you read as a child that perhaps has stuck with you through the years, or maybe a favorite movie that has had a deep impact and inspired you, a song perhaps. And though I'm not a movie producer or a songwriter, I understand that the creators of such products, they wish to make some kind of impact on those that get to experience the things that they've created. There's an emotion or an ideology that they wish to promote to others. They hope to have an effect on other people. And I'm here to tell you that there is a story that surpasses them all. And it's much more than just a story it is literally the hope of nations. The gospel message of Jesus Christ always produces, always has an impact. It leaves an effect, an effect on others wherever it goes. Sometimes it's a positive response and other times negative, but it is a message that is infinitely more significant and impactful than any other. The greatest novel or Shakespearean play or timeless movie does not even slightly compare with the gravity of the news of Jesus Christ. You've likely read or heard the passage of Scripture in Isaiah 55 where God says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. You could say that God's word is on a mission. And God's chosen instruments as his voice are regular people like you and I. And God's power stands behind every word that we speak now, you've likely experienced this, like in your faithfulness and zeal to announce the good news of Jesus to your friends and family, you have witnessed several different responses. For some to hear of the death of Jesus on the cross for sin sparks at least curiosity. For others, you may get a roll of the eyes or some form of apathy. Some folks get instantly irritated or even angry. And yet for others, you may see and witness their eyes light up and their hearts soften at the news of Jesus Christ. It's really an interesting phenomenon. And I've always wondered, you know, humanly speaking, how people can have some of those strong negative responses to Christians into the gospel message. 
Because our motives as believers, they originate in a heart of love for God and for His people that He's created. And though not perfect, Christians have largely served as a positive influence in the world throughout history. It's those who proclaim the name of Jesus that have created hospitals to care for the sick, for helping out community assistance, institutions for higher learning, because a love for God creates love for people and for community. But what I've learned over the years is there's usually no logic or rational thinking that leads to the hostility that we face. And we see this manifesting itself in an overwhelming fashion today. In many ways, it's not a battle or division over ideology. It's literally good versus evil. It's an absolute affirmation that there is a spiritual war raging. But it's nothing new. It's been this way throughout history and will continue until Jesus returns to call us home. And we see this in our study in the book of Acts. Time and time again, we have witnessed a number of different responses to the gospel as Luke recounts all that occurred in the life of the early church. Please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 14, and we're going to pick up our study covering verses 1 to 18 this morning. I'm not sure how much we delved into this verse last week, but in the previous chapter, Acts 13, verses 48 and 49, we read that, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was spreading. There's a term that is referred to by theologians as effective calling, and Wayne Grudem defines it as an act of God the Father speaking through the human proclamation of the gospel in which he summons people to himself in such a way that they respond in saving faith. And so as we are faithful, and as Paul and Barnabas and the other apostles were faithful in declaring the word of God, they saw the promised results of God calling forth his people. This is what we're witnessing as we work chapter by chapter through the book of Acts. And you already know, we've encountered such a mixed bag of responses to the gospel. But God knows that through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus, that his people will respond, and they will turn in repentance and faith. And the church is going to continue to grow town after town, day after day, year after year. His church will be built. His people will be added. It's guaranteed. The word of the Lord was spreading. And this is our confidence when we share the good news of Jesus. We know that God is at work, that he will build his church, and we will see results. And we see it happening again this morning with two different groups, two different cities. So let's read the passage as we get underway in Acts chapter 14. Now at Iconium they entered together in the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe cities of Lyconia and to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. 
Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments. They rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, and he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. This is the word of the Lord. The central point that I want for us to consider today is that faithful proclamation of the gospel will consistently bring varied results. Faithful proclamation of the gospel will consistently bring varied results. And the first point to get us there is the faithful proclamation of the gospel stirs up hostility. Even before we enter into chapter 14, we realize that there was this great persecution against Paul and Barnabas and Antioch that brought them into our chapter this morning. They left a mess in their wake. The, the Gentiles have responded favorably to the, to the gospel, and yet many of the Jews and all these leading people of the city, they're looking for a way to drive them out of the city. They've had enough of this gospel in their town. But Paul and Barnabas, they don't, they don't kind of leave with their tail between their legs and, and in defeat because they kept walking and they just went to Iconium. They've been long at this long enough to know that persecution is going to be a theme of this ministry. And I love how John Calvin kind of describes this transition. He writes in his commentary, he says, But though they had but short entertainment in one place, yet they do not yield. Because they consider that the Lord had called them upon that condition, that they should do their duty through, though the whole world and Satan did say nay. Therefore, we see that they came not only ready to teach, but also armed to enter conflicts, that they might courageously proceed in publishing the gospel, even through the midst of combats. Why don't we talk like that anymore? I'm only slightly joking. I'm going to climb on top of a soapbox just for a moment here. But even just noticing the cultural shift over the past few decades... I'll keep this brief, but it does kind of pertain to what we're talking about in Acts. But there used to be such courage displayed. Men used to be men, women used to be women. And, and before all of this gender identity confusion, men today are now conditioned to surrender to that which consult, culture considers to be toxic. Courage and the willingness to fight for what is right. Now, I'm not dismissing women in this. I mean, who would do such a thing on Mother's Day? because it certainly takes a lot of courage to be a woman today also. 
But just how God created men and women with distinction, men have always been the one to lead the charge in the fight. It's inherent inherent in them to provide and protect, even from Genesis 1. And I found, you know, as I look at it culturally and how it has affected even the church and how the church has kind of adopted culture, like many, much contemporary preaching has really shrunk away and, and really delivers more, I'm not, and I'm not speaking particularly of our church, but I'm just saying the church in general, you, you get a lot more emotive and feel-good messages and how to live in, in a healthy life and in prosperity Messages today seem to be a mile wide and an inch deep. So we may get Christianity light if we get anything Christian at all. And it's really sad to see. I mean, you look around, you see a lot of mainline churches have completely surrendered to cultural pressure for the sake of diversity clout. And there's really no reason for the world to oppose them any longer. But it even comes out and. I kind of hesitate to say this because I'm not referring to this church again, but how many songs that we see written perhaps in the top 40 uh, worship websites and things carry the same weight as a mighty fortress is our God? Because you see, we are in a spiritual battle as we're seeing through the book of Acts. We need deep anchors so that we enter into this battle equipped. As Calvin writes, that they might courageously proceed in publishing the gospel even through the midst of combats. The church, particularly today, needs less superficiality and significantly more truth anchored deep within us individually, corporately. I mean, how else do we expect to not only endure the fight, but to succeed in it? Paul goes on to say that we're to put on the armor of God, and that begins with a belt of truth. You know, as I think about that, I was thinking about the songs that we sang today. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward, I look and see see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. See, I I can go to battle with that. Those are truths that are going to keep me rooted when Satan comes at me, because he will. If we're only dealing on the emotive in the things that we read and the things that we sing, we're not going to be ready for the battle. So I really appreciate just some of the things that we've sung even this morning. Stepping back down off the soapbox. Because Paul and Barnabas, they knew. They were in, they're in a battle here. They walked from one right into the middle of the next. The text reads in verse 1 that they spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. They spoke in such a way. What do we know about the disciples to this point of the narrative? They were, they were bold in their mission to proclaim the name of Jesus. They were convinced. They were compelled. They were driven. See, it's easy to speak on a topic when everybody applauds you. But when they're holding rocks in their hands? Listen, since the resurrection of Jesus, since Jesus confronted Saul on the road to Damascus, people changed. No longer did Peter shrink to the accusations of a schoolgirl and deny Jesus. No longer did the disciples hide 
They were convinced. They stood out in the open. They walked into the synagogues. They stood before rulers. What could any man to do to them now that they knew that Jesus was alive and that their own resurrection into eternal life was now their fate? What can man do to me? They spoke in such a way. And as promised, a great number believed, Jews and Greeks. And interesting here, Jews and Greeks believe, and it's also Jews and Gentiles, anybody that's not a Jew, that oppose them. And I thought about that. I mean, I, th- I, I think this is the only division that is biblically permissible. Let me explain. Because nowhere do we find justification to be separated based upon skin color, social class, gender, because we've all descended from Adam and Eve. We all claim the same father and mother. But the Bible does talk about a separation only of sheep and goats, of believers and unbelievers. And this is what we see here in verse 2. Along with the spread of the gospel, there comes opposition, and it comes from from different ethnicities, people from different social classes, rulers and the regular people alike. A common enemy creates allies. And it says here that the unbelieving Jews stirred up and poisoned. Have you ever considered how easy it is to stir people up and create division and hate? Unity is always more difficult. You've seen it. If not in person, you've seen news footage of riots in the streets. It doesn't take much to whip a crowd into a frenzy. After all, sin. See, give people unfettered access to their sinful nature and it gets ugly in a hurry. How about poisoning the minds? So, so easy. A little gossip and slander goes a long way. I mean, have you noticed if if I tell you that George can't be trusted, whether it's true or not, see, I've now created a category for you that's going to cause you to second-guess George. I apologize if there's anybody named George here. It's completely random. But you see how easy that is? Words can be poisoned, so it's not very difficult. Satan is a master at this, and he recruits people in it. It's always the easier work to poison the minds of people. And so in this account in Iconium, it's almost like a movie unfolding. You can, you can visualize it. Suddenly all eyes kind of turn to Paul and Barnabas and they can feel this new tension. But it, by contrast, let me speak to unity for a moment. Because we're also seeing it playing out here and in the rest of Acts. People from otherwise different backgrounds are now calling on the name of Jesus and they're gathering together. They're worshiping, they're baptizing, they're sharing communion meals together. What unifies them? Common recreation likes, music, outdoors, a sports activity, certainly not golf. But (laughs) it's Jesus. How do we know him today? It's through his written word. It's special revelation. Unity is always and only achieved through a common purpose not a striving for unity in itself. Does that make sense? So in the same way that a country can never be united if we don't have the same goal laid out in, say, the Constitution, so the Christian church can never be unified apart from a faithful understanding of the Word of God. I'm certainly not trying to equate the two. I'm just setting this up as an example. 
making unity for the sake of unity does not happen. There must always be a common truth. It is God's truth above all else. And that's why Jesus prayed that believers would be one even as he and the Father are one. This isn't achieved as we look horizontally and just try to get along. Because what did Jesus say? As we are one. It's as we look vertically to God that unity happens. It's vertical, not horizontal. So as we all pursue Christ, that's where true unity comes from. But here we're witnessing this, it's, it's a gospel wedge. It unifies and it divides. Jews and Greeks believe and are eternally united in Christ and others stand opposed. Verse 4 affirms this. The people of the city were divided. So what did Paul and Barnabas do under this strong opposition? Well, they remained longer. (laughs) They spoke boldly for the Lord and the Lord granted signs and wonders to accompany the word of his grace. What a loving thing for God to do here. He didn't just tell them to tough it out and, and deal with it. He graciously gave them miracles so their confidence would be bolstered in him. But apparently enough was enough, and these representative groups groups from Gentiles and Jews and their rulers, they determined to increase the opposition. They were threatening to mistreat, mistreat and stone them. Paul and Barnabas learned of it, and they decide it's finally time to move on. So they depart, and they journey south and east to these cities of Lystra and Derbe and the surrounding country. And so they soldier on, preaching the gospel, not changing a thing. They know, they know what they're we're up against. They know what their ministry is. And so Luke records this account that happens in Lystra in our concluding verses of 8 to 18. First, we saw the faithful proclamation of the gospel stirs up hostility. Next, we're going to see that faithful proclamation of the gospel may create false worship. And I'll hope to bring some clarity to that as we move through this. When they enter Lystra, they encounter this man that was crippled from birth. Seems to be a similar encounter to what Peter and John had in chapter 3. And as these events unfold, it seems Paul and Barnabas now utilize, they don't have a Jewish synagogue perhaps, so they have this outside venue for their proclamation, which would be normal if they have this heavily Greek influence. They're used to this public oratory. And as Paul was speaking, he took notice of this crippled man. And he looks intently at him. And the text doesn't explicitly say why he does so. But it does indicate that he saw he had the faith to be made well. Now, if we we pause here for a moment, because that's an interesting thing to say. I mean, this in in itself should should be miraculous. Imagine being this adult man crippled from birth. Perhaps on numerous occasions he he would muster all the courage he could in the hopes that he would walk someday. How many days did he try? Day after day, over and over. There had to come a point in time over the years of trying where he resolved to just, just give in to this crippled fate that he had. But how interesting that at this point in time, Paul could look at him and see that he had faith that he might be healed. To be honest, I'm not exactly sure what this may have looked like. Maybe we do. Perhaps one time we share the gospel and we can see faith in someone's eyes. 
In any event, Paul seizes the opportunity and, and in dramatic fashion, expressing great faith for him in, you know, even on his own. He says in a loud voice for everyone to hear, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. Can you imagine? All your life, the faith shown by both men here. Paul took the risk. He made a spectacle of it. And the man was instantly and fully healed. And, and what does the crowd do? Why, they immediately repent of their sins and trust in Jesus. No. They begin to worship Paul and Barnabas, the messengers. They've mistaken them for Greek gods. It's interesting, we're given this little information in verse 11 that they spoke in Lyconian. So Paul and Barnabas, they probably didn't understand at first what's going on. You know, they're labeled as Zeus and Hermes. The priest goes out and he brings sacrificial animals for worship. And as much as we might be tempted to chuckle at this, there's a few things we learn, you know, about misguided worship from this. The first thing I notice is that we're created to worship. You know, in innate with all of us, there's a recognition of something greater than us. It could be a God to worship or at least a higher power for existence. There's a, there's a desire to worship. We want to know that there's something greater than us. But if it's not directed to the God who created us, then it's misguided and false worship. And the fact that their initial response is to worship affirms this. In this case, they're in the process of worshiping messengers. How often have you or witnessed others worship other human beings? I mean... You may not bust out the sacrificial oxen. But we constantly elevate people, movie actors, musicians, authors. We may hang on their words. We might mimic their activities, maybe less so as we enter into adulthood. But it can possibly transfer into the Christian world too. I mean, I know for a time in my life, I had been inclined to place certain people on pedestals. I had looked up to missionaries and college and seminary professors and pastors and authors in unhealthy ways. I remember hearing the stories of bold missionaries and feeling unworthy of such tasks. I would soak up the teachings of professors as if they were the ultimate authorities. And then over time, I began to watch as some of them walked away from the faith, others in moral failings, some abusing authority for financial gain. We must remember that all of us are sinful human beings that are susceptible to failure. But the one that we testify to is always the object of the worship. We don't worship the messengers. And yet God has chosen frail human beings to be the messengers of the gospel. The problem comes when those same people assume some of the worship and they forget who they are. There are times when these people rob God of the glory that he is due. They think of themselves more highly than they ought. They take the credit. We see it in some popular church leaders and speakers. Sometimes we forget that any and all abilities and gifts that we possess come from God alone. So he gets the glory in how he uses us. Did Paul and Barnabas have that problem? Nope. They tear their clothes and they cry out, pleading with them to stop. They says, we are men just like you, same nature. We're just the messengers. 
Faithful proclamation of the gospel may create false worship. But faithful servants will correct and instruct and point to Jesus. Lastly, faithful proclamation of the gospel turns false worship to worship of the living God. Faithful proclamation of the gospel turns false worship to worship of the living God. See, Paul recognizes he's not talking to a Jewish audience now. He's, he's talking to those that are heavily influenced by Greek culture. They don't have a knowledge of the Scripture, so he takes a different angle with them. He says in verse 15, we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. Vain are any other gods that rival the one true God. And he makes the case, it is God that made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In verses 16 and 17, in past generations, he allowed the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave them self-witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. That God. In a way, Paul is appealing to this sense of general revelation. He says, hey, look around. There's a God who made everything that you see. He has blessed you even with you out, without you acknowledging it. He's taken care of you. This is the God you were created to worship. There are no other gods. Commentator David Peterson says that this is the evidence of God's common grace and the sustaining fruitfulness of nature and the pleasures of everyday life as a basis for communication. For people who are far removed from the Bible and its way of looking at things, this may be the only starting point for an appeal to acknowledge the living God who made the heaven and the earth and everything in them. And increasingly, this may be the case for the contemporary church. Unbelievers are further and further removed from any biblical understanding, so we may also benefit from starting to look around and see what God has done. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. And Paul kind of picks up on this in Romans chapter 1 that he says that the unbelieving world is without excuse because God has made himself known in creation. Now, perhaps it's easy for us to see the foolishness in worshiping Zeus and Hermes, right? These Greek gods, the vain things that Paul mentioned. Yet, are we immune to worshiping vain things? I mean, where have we heard vain or vanity before? The book of Ecclesiastes. It's here that we affirm that anything we, we pursue apart from God is vanity, or better, fleeting, we must all die in the end, and a life spent pursuing wealth, notoriety, sex, or even happiness without God is a life wasted. It will all vanish. Notice the connections between the word vain, vanity, vanish. So I feel as though this point is not reserved for the unbeliever only. As Christians, we continue to wrestle, wrestle with false worship. This isn't to say that there's nothing on earth worth pursuing. It's just that if it doesn't have God 
at the end of it and through it, it's all futile. They're all futile pursuits. And as we have been called to be children of God through the gospel, so we live out our lives in it. We continue on God's mission by proclaiming it so that others are brought into the family of God. We proclaim the gospel. The gospel is on a mission. God calls forth his people. We make some enemies along the way, but we're, we're faithful to it because we know what's at stake. What is the message that we proclaim? Well, we're all born into sin and we are separated from God. But God determined in eternity past that he would reconcile his people by sending his very own son to take on flesh and to live a perfect life that we failed to do so that he would become an acceptable sacrifice, a payment for our sin. That by looking to Jesus, we might repent of our sin and place our faith solely in him and his provision for us that we might obtain eternal life with him. That's the message. That's the, that's the message that's greater than any other message or story you've ever heard. Please turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, a few pages over to your right, a few books over. And I want to close with this because I believe this is Paul probably reflecting back on his, on his ministry. But he really summarizes several of the themes we've looked at in this chapter. It is a chapter of humble service that acknowledges, acknowledges the supremacy of Christ, the hardships of ministry, and the purpose of why Paul and Barnabas and you and me continue to preach Christ. Paul writes, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 1, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the, state of God, in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, light, light, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always giving over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. And since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. 
For it is all for your sake, so that as grace abounds to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting our way, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the power of the gospel that transforms the dead to life, that brings light into the darkness, that gives us new life for eternity. I pray that we might be encouraged in the work that you've done on us and in the destiny that you have planned for us. And I also pray that those that may not yet know you, that might be here this morning, that you may open their eyes, that they might see the good news of Jesus, the hope of nations. The only hope to be found is in you and your great love for us and the grace that you have manifested to us as you pour out your blood on the cross. I pray that everything that we do to, to live out and to proclaim your message, we would not take the glory, but we would give it all to you, that your name would be praised in Jesus' name. Amen.